It's Dr. Stu's podcast. Welcome. It's me, Dr. Stu. Thanks for listening. Uh, you can catch us on iTunes. Give us five stars. You can look up us, uh, look us up at drstuespodcast.com. You can tweet us at hashtag Dr. Stu's podcast, uh, which I have no idea how you, what that means. And you can like us on Facebook. Uh, you can find me at birthinginstincts.com and you can email us with any questions. I do respond to all emails. I might divvy some up to my new co-host, Kim, today, but uh, it's at askdrstu at gmail.com. That's askdoctor, that's drstu, uh, S-T-U, at gmail.com. So uh, I want to welcome to the podcast today, um, Kim Durden. Kim Durden's been a friend of mine for you know, close to a decade, a little mm-hmm. less than a decade, I think. Time flies. Kim, Yeah, and she's got a great voice, and she's got a lot to say, and I've always been impressed with her, and Kim is a doula and a lactation consultant, and a midwife student, and a mom, Mm -hmm. and uh, an all-in-all really uh, uh, intellectual, eclectic person. And uh, so, Kim, welcome to my podcast. Thank you for having me, Stu. This is like totally amazing. And I'm, I'm so glad to be here because I haven't seen you in a while. Last time I saw you, we were at a birth together, right? Yeah, we were. We were at a birth together in the valley. Actually, it was in the valley, and it was hot. (laughs) <laughs> right. Was which birth was it? <laughs> you're, trying, you're trying to have me remember these things, so I'm trying to remember which birth that was. You, you can't say names. I, I can't well, say you, names. You'll figure it out later. Yeah, when you're driving yeah. back, you'll be and like, we're gonna, oh, we, yeah. We actually are going to have another one, I think. We've got oh, a yes. twin birth coming up. I heard about that. But yes. We're not supposed to talk about it, so shh. Well, we can talk about it. We just, just we can't, can't say any names. Yes. yes. I have yes. lots of twin births coming up. As a matter of fact, I have... Uh, How that's, many? That's, well, I have four in September, and I have... I did two last month, and I've got... You have four in September, two last month. Wow. Yep, yep. Awesome. and two in October already. Okay, cool. So I mean, it's, a, it's great, and, and, and it just seems like it's, it's starting to balloon it, uh, uh, itself because of the fact that choices are so limited. Exactly. Um, and you of, haven't figured out how to clone yourself yet. No, I'm working on it. We did have a, a young resident, a third-year resident, come to a birth with us last week, which awesome. is very exciting, if I can make it another two years, and... I can get him to uh, sign on the dotted line. Awesome. Because, yeah, it's really hard. Uh, like I just got back, and we're going to talk about this today. Right. We're going to talk about the breach conference in Amsterdam. Right. But, you know, going away for me, um, and this is I mentioned this on the podcast before, mm-hmm. is always a potential problem because if I have a breach or a twin client do and I happen to go out of town uh, and they go into labor, there's almost no choices for them. And it's really sad uh, for them, of course, and also for me and the team. Right. Uh, because we know that that uh, the options that we offer them are quite reasonable, right? And yet uh, they're so limited when it comes to the hospital setting, where you know even if people thought that the hospital is a safer place to do it, and they think that me doing breach or twin deliveries outside of the hospital is crazy, you know what I think is crazy is that them they're not offering it in the hospital exactly. And so what choice do these women have other than a cesarean section, which? Is, is really not indicated. I've said this before, you know, there's about 4 million births in the United States every year. And we have about 32% of them by cesarean section, which if you do the math is about 1.4 million mm. C-sections. The World Health Organization says it should be 10, 15%. Right. Uh, let's just say 15%. That means that we're doing more than double the recommended level of cesarean sections, which means we're probably doing about 750,000 unnecessary cesareans a year in the United States. If we were doing that many unnecessary surgeries of anything else, there would be a, a major outcry. And yet there's not a peep. 
Yeah, and I also, uh, you know, you're great on the percentages, and I know you're reading <laughs> a lot of the studies. You are. Yeah, and, I, go, and, I could go nuts with the math. But but I know I, I heard recently that iotrogenic uh, hospital, you know, errors, hospital errors are one of the leading causes of death and illness in the hospital. Have you read that? Yeah, story? no, that, that, well, that's actually true. And there's there's crazy numbers, and it really is hard to keep track of that because some things are reported. Uh, it's hard to sometimes weed out what's iatrogenic right. and what's not. But, and um, and yeah, that I'm, still encompasses things that happen in childbearing, with well, childbearing. Well, I have seen myself, when I used to work in the hospital for mm-hmm. um, 28 years, mm-hmm. um, many errors. None of they, fortunately, only rarely did they ever lead to a, either a, a losing a fetus mm-hmm. or, or a mother. I mean, mm-hmm. rarely did they ever lose a mother. But, but it led to a lot of potential complications, giving right. wrong medications, uh, a patient uh, getting, going into renal failure because she right. hemorrhaged in bed at night and no one even came in the room. Right. And she got hypotensive. I mean, I, look, I could... Yeah, you could go on I, and on. I could on go on and yeah. on. So... You know, it's the it's the it's the it's the issues that can happen from these situations that people don't talk about and the complications that can go on for years that people don't talk about. I mean, simple things like scar tissue, excessive scar tissue, and not being you know what happens and how it's so hard to treat that sort of thing. And you know, uh, Ina Mae Gaskin, we all love to quote Ina Mae, but one of the things that she did was the safe motherhood quilt, and she still has it uh, going on. And basically, she wanted to bring attention to. Uh, uh, mortality uh, in in childbearing, women who die um, giving birth in the United States, um, and she wanted to uh, she didn't want us to forget. And she talks about how in other countries, um, specifically in the UK, um, that they do do a review of mortality and morbidity um, in childbirth, and they they follow women uh, for a year. Um, because complications can happen, you know, beyond the six weeks postpartum period um, that are related to something that happened in childbirth. And so they do a good review of that in the UK and and they are looking to uh, look at those numbers and those situations and figure out how to do things better. But in, in the United States, we do not do that. Is that true that we do not do that? Not that I know of, and certainly not the detail. I mean, I'm going to relate something that you just said to something that I learned at the, at the Breach Conference, which they talk about that there there were some per, really real pearls of wisdom at the conference mm. and there were some there was some still reliance on the term breach trial which i thought would have mm. sort of disappeared mm-hmm. but it's still it's still out there but if you look at the the perinatal death uh numbers that they talked about at the conference and with breach delivery one of the uh lecturers said that the perinatal death rate from cesarean section is 0.5 which is means that there that it's per 1000 um, babies and perinatal death is within the first week of life. So 0.5 for cesarean section per thousand and 1.6 per thousand for vaginal breach delivery, hmm. which is about a threefold increase in risk. However, if you look at the second pregnancy, hmm. the risk of a perinatal death from a breach in a second pregnancy is 1.3 per thousand and it, and in uh, from a cesarean section is up to 2.4 per Per thousand, and that's because of the risks involved with the first Having, cesarean section. Right. So ultimately, the, if you add those up, the risks in the second pregnancy, if you had uh, had a C-section for a breach in the first pregnancy, right. are the same. Right. So to not do a bre- to to do a C-section because it's safer for the first pregnancy is nullified by 
the risks in the second in pregnancy. The second pregnancy and subsequent pregnancies. And that's, it goes up. And that's something that, I, yeah, and it, it definitely goes up if you keep right. having more C-sections because right. then we can bring in placenta accreta. Exactly. But that's, the, that's a statistic that, you know, I've quoted statistics about breach delivery for a really long time. That mm-hmm. That's a new one. One of the things I wanted to say about Ida Mae, too, is that one uh, she she makes a quilt square for every mother that she's contacted about that has died due to, ca- you know, causes around child around childbearing. And, and one of the things that she highlights is that she has a, a quilt square uh, on her safe motherhood quilt of a mother who died from a complications due uh, a complication related to childbirth related to a C-section, but the complication reared its ugly head in 20 years postpartum for this woman. And um, I can't remember exactly what the complication is, but you could go to the Safe Motherhood Quilt website. Um, it's a, a ORG website. I believe it's safemotherhoodquilt.org. Um, and you can get some history on that. But those types of things aren't talked about in our culture. And, you know, when a mom has to consider possibly having a C-section or having a procedure done or having an intervention in her labor that might lead to a higher risk of c-section none of these conversations are being had and sometimes it can be presented to the mom like this is it's really safe it's a safe surgery we do lots of these you know uh your babies you know whatever the reasons are and and it's really hard for women to get the full picture of what the long-term health consequences are of some of these yeah i'm sure as a doula you've probably had to sit through this conversation sometimes and just bite your bite your lip and, and, and shut your mouth you do yeah. The the interesting thing also was that um, some women will come to me as a new client, and one of the questions I always ask a new client is, well, you know, why home birth? What motivated you for home birth? And sometimes they'll say, well, I was born at home, or my sister had a baby at home. And sometimes they'll say things like, well, I had a real bad experience because my father who uh, had a hospital error and died in the hospital, and every time I go into yes. a hospital, I'm totally freaked out. Yes. And I hear that more often than I should, and I have a very small sampling. So you're right. When we talked earlier about uh, you know iatrogenic errors and stuff like that, there, you know, there there are, and you know, there are errors that happen at home, and there are things that that because sure. uh, we're human beings that sure. things happen. But I just think that the system is not designed to be sensitive to the individual in a hospital setting, and therefore, um, you know, it's sort of a shift mentality, and it's. Uh, it's whatever's safest and best for the hospital. Right. There's, there, you know, there's policies and procedures and protocols that need to be followed, and everybody has to be monitored and have an IV, and they can't eat. It's a one-size-fits-all approach for a very individual experience, and that's the problem. But it's a one-size-fits-all approach because we have the hospital industrial complex. I mean, it's a big, it's a business, you know. And you've kind of stepped, you have stepped outside of the mainstream for various reasons and given us a new way to look at birth from an OB perspective, doing birth at home, doing things um, that you have a lot of experience doing. And, you know, it is a totally different paradigm. It is what makes your presence in Southern California great for us who work in birth, midwives, doulas, all that kind of stuff, but hard for you, be extremely difficult. Um, I admire the way that you try to create some balance in your own life because that's the other thing we are human beings you have a life i think you have a life right Stu? because i only see you at birth yeah, some, so i'm not some, sure if days, you actually have a life <laughs> yeah someday i mean i love what i'm doing right now but you're right you're talking about the, the time commitment and the, the time commitment and always and the, being on and always being on and so i think that there is definitely i mean i'm excited 
to, to talk about the breach conference. I saw some of the pictures that you posted on Facebook and there was a lot of people there, which I thought maybe it was like this small thing, like a handful of people, but it was a lot of people there. So I want to hear about it because I want to hear about it and I want to hear what people are doing in other countries and like, are there more, are there people doing vaginal breach in other parts of the country? Is it just the U.S. that is kind of, you know, kind of gone back or kind of gone away from vaginal breach? Because I will say gone away from breach because I know for a fact that my grandmother, a black woman from the South who um, had most of her kids in the South, um, maybe saw a family doctor, maybe saw whoever um, during her eight pregnancies did have a vaginal breach delivery with my uncle, her fifth baby, um, who was 11 pounds. And you know, whatever. And she had three more kids after that. And it was not talked about like a big deal. Whereas, interestingly enough, my first birth experience was a breech child and I had a cesarean um, simply because she was breech. She was frank breech. She was a great position for vaginal birth. But the doctors at the hospital that I was birthing at uh, in New York told me, sorry, we can't do it. It's too dangerous. And you didn't know enough to ask. I was in labor. Question, right? I was in labor, and I had just discovered it was just discovered that I was breech earlier that day. So my options were there were no options. It was, I was told, I know you wanted to have a vaginal delivery, but if the head gets stuck, then that's it. And by the way, you don't have a lot of amniotic fluid right now. So, oh well, let's get you ready for your C-section. Well, what does the amniotic fluid have to do? Well, I, you know, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm trying to put logic involved in that that uh-huh. whole thing. Uh, so tell me about... Well, look, first of all, there's, so I learned a lot of pearls of wisdom there. One of them is that it's not the big babies that have problems. It's the smaller babies. Interesting. And, oh, and there, there's, there's so many pearls of wisdom. Some of them, if people want to get a little more detailed uh, evaluation, if they're really interested in breech delivery or they know somebody who's a breech baby... Um, they can go to my uh, birthinginstincts.com website, click on the blog section, and the last two blogs, they were, were part one and part two of, of my summation of the lectures that I heard in Amsterdam. Also, Rick Safries and her beautiful website, uh, standanddeliver.blogspot.com, um, uh, did a, even a more detailed thing. I think she like recorded the whole thing and put down notes and transcripts. It was amazing. First of all, I loved Amsterdam. Uh, it's the first time I've been there. It's an did amazing you smoke city. Anything there? I did not, and I, <laughs> I, I didn't do any red light stuff, and I didn't do any smoking. But I did love the way they they market the uh, cannabis there. I mean, I, we were walking by just in the major shopping areas, and they had like cannabis Tootsie Pops, and <laughs> and uh, you know, get brownies or you get anything else you wanted with uh, with the THC in it. So, uh, but you know what? I'm that's not my thing, and neither was the red light district. That's okay. Uh, we did walk by a place though where we were just walking all over because that's one of the things about Amsterdam is it's beautiful and it's easy to get around and everybody bikes or walks and everybody's i didn't see any people that were not overweight right hardly like almost none uh and uh we and uber works great by the way in amsterdam Hmm. so we used uber a lot and the but the conference was two days and it was it was great uh there were people there that i know from previous breach conferences and I, I was approached by somebody from the conference and said, you know, we know you spoke at the last two breach conferences, but we felt that this conference being European, international, that we weren't ready for someone doing home breach delivery. Interesting. Because they did have people who were saying that maybe cesarean section isn't so bad for, cesare- uh, for a breach. And so it was a good conference. But I, what I really like to see happen someday is, is somebody who wants to really defend the term breach trial like Mary Hanna or any of the people that were co-authors of the study, 
would be wonderful to hear them debate somebody like Anka Ritter or Frank Lewin, people that are supportive of properly selected upright breach delivery. But you never get those two people in the same room. So can you explain also upright breach delivery? Because I don't know what that term means. That upright. means on all fours. Okay. As opposed to on your back. Okay. You know, the, and, and there was a lot of data presented that the upright position is more physiologic, that uh, it requires less interventions. That, again, I don't want to be throwing out too many numbers here today, but in the Frankfurt study, 34% of people who were on all fours required a maneuver or two to get the baby out, mm -hmm. whereas on their back it was 77%. Wow. All right, That's now, a huge difference. Again, the mor mortality and morbidity was, was no different, but... The, the, the position, the optimal position for breech delivery is actually on all fours for most women. Okay. And one of the things about the term breech trial, and, and I've written about this many times before, there's a lot of flaws in their methodology using composite risk and not uh, determining the skill of the practitioner or the desire of the mother or anything, and people, whether the head was flexed or not. Right. But one of the interesting things about that I learned at the study is also is that this, the term breach trial compared a standardized procedure, which is cesarean section, which is pretty much done the same all over the world. Okay. Versus the under, unst, unstandardized, is that, no, non-standardized? Non-standardized. Non-standardized, um, non-physiologic positioning of breach delivery, which most of the time is on your back. Right. So there was no standardization for the vaginal birth, but there was standardization for the cesarean birth, and, you, and they were comparing them, and that's really comparing apples to oranges. So wait a second. So you're saying that when they, com when they compared the vaginal births, the vaginal births had the, mo the moms, the women who were birthing were in different, all different types of positions, and it wasn't kind of selected Well, in the out. 90s, when this study was taking place, most people were done um, on, their back. on their back. That's just the way saying. it was done. I see what you're saying. And the outcomes for people on their back aren't as good as people on, on all fours. I got it. But there was no standardization. So you really, it really was another flaw in the way the data was collected. So in a, in a sense that the study kind of favors cesarean delivery because... Uh, They're it, only it, looking at the one birth... <laughs> That, that one time. They're not looking at the thing we talked about earlier, which is what happens in the second and the third and the fourth right. birth. Right. And the key, and, and what's funny about it too is that uh, the, these studies uh, that, that were done currently, the Frankfurt study, they did include prima paras or first time mm -hmm. mothers. But a lot of breach centers that are just fledgling and are starting out are not allowing the first time mothers right. to, to deliver. And, and in the Frankfurt study, I think 77% of the women who were breached were first-time mothers. Hmm. In my own practice, it's 83%. Hmm. And that's because most multips, you know, the babies can turn or you can right. do an external cephalic version and because turn the baby. Because mom, her body is kind of a little bit more malleable because she's we don't already say, had a baby. We don't want to say it's a little bit more loose and... <laughs> Uh, more flexible, blubbery, yeah, a little, yeah, a little softer. <laughs> There's more room for the baby to right. move around and for right. us to so, help them move. So, um, but for for you know, you want to avoid that C first C section, and then you're not you're excluding those people. There, there, there's so much. One of the one of the things that that really shocked me, and I think, I think that hits home for you. It'll hit home for you too, because uh, I, I know some of the 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 feelings you have about third world or or poor. The, the unequal care that poor people get. Right. When the, when the, and this is not this is an unintended consequence, and I'm sure that the authors of the term breach trial didn't intend this to happen. Mm -hmm. But when they made the recommendation in 2001 that C-section was better than breach than vaginal breach delivery, and this was adopted pretty much worldwide, which by the way was a unique 
unique thing. It's very, very rare in medical history for one paper to come out wow. and change the world. Most of the time a paper comes out and there's something new and fantastic and other people will try to research the data before it really changes. The, but this was adopted within six months worldwide that uh, vaginal breach delivery was removed from most hospitals and certainly most training programs. And they, they, they compared it to cesarean section, which they found was better. But cesarean section in Canada, which is where the study was, well, put together, but in the Western world mm -hmm. is a pretty safe procedure. Mm -hmm. But it's not a very safe procedure in the right. third world. Exactly. Yet third world obstetricians also immediately adopted the fact that they weren't going to allow vaginal breach delivery. <laughs> and um, the, this, the, one of the lecturers, this gentleman, uh, spent a year in Malawi, mm -hmm. um, and he quoted some uh, uh, statistics from Africa, and he said, uh, one of the, one of the uh, scientific numbers that's used is something called the number needed to treat. And the number of needed to treat means how many interventions you need to do to prevent one bad outcome. And the number needed to treat for the term breach trial was 1 in 338, which means they had to do 338 cesarean sections to prevent one bad perinatal outcome. Hmm. Um, that may not sound like a lot if you say 1 in 338. Well, you know, that's still 99.7% chance you didn't need anything done. But that's a really big number needed to treat. I mean, that's a scary it number is. needed to treat because it means you're doing... I don't think it sounds small. I think it right. sounds huge. So in order to save one baby, you had to do 338 cesarean sections. But in countries like Tanzania, if you do 338 cesarean sections, you'll kill six women. Hmm. So what happened was the unintended consequence of in order to save one baby... You're actually killing You're killing six women. mothers. Okay. That doesn't and, sound like a good trade-off. No, because, and, and these women were, and again, think about it. The, a lot of these women who were getting cesarean sections in third world countries were probably was their second or third or fourth baby. Mm -hmm. And you know and I know yes. that the success rate of those, right. well, in my practice is 100%, but you know, I don't have enough to make it statistically significant. But even in the, term, in the Frankfurt study, it was extremely high yes. in women having their second or third babies in the 80, 80 plus percentile. So you're doing all these unnecessary cesarean sections and you're, and the unintended consequences were, were horrible. And that's still going on right now because the term breach trial is still being defended in, in, in most institutions, certainly in America. Uh, and, the, and, and oh boy, I, there's so many pearls here. But another pearl of wisdom is, is, is that we teach residents and midwives the skills and how to handle a shoulder dystocia. Right. Okay. We teach them that because on a rare occasion, you'll get a shoulder dystocia. You need to know what to do. Right. Why are we treating breach differently? Why are we not teaching midwives and residents to deal with a breach delivery, even if it's just an emergency scenario? But they're not even teaching that anymore because right. they've really taken it out of the training. Well, that's why we don't have anybody. That's why I had a C-section for my first child in 1991 because there was nobody. It wasn't. It, it, that was way before. The that, exactly. So what I'm saying is, uh, you know. There was some kind of like thought out there in the ethers that maybe I could still have my baby breach. I don't know how I kind of thought that, well, my ba if my baby's breach, why can't I just have her vaginally? I don't understand. But, the, but what I was told was, well, there's nobody here in this particular hospital at this particular time that knows how to do breach delivery. And so that wasn't an option for me. And just to take away that training um, altogether, I mean, we it, it sounds like, it's a way to drive more births towards cesarean section in general. I mean, why would you take out that teaching and why would you take out that knowledge? What if cesarean section is not available, let's just say, um, or there's a higher risk for the mother to have cesarean section depending on where she lives or in the world or the cost 
of of also that mom's longer recovery time of possible you know all the risk associated with this cesarean section in a in a first world country or third world country or whatever you want to say and what those costs are um, to the family and to um, and to her long-term health. Those are the things that aren't talked about. It's kind of just like, well, we can do a C-section, so let's just do that. So I know you've thought about this for a lot, too. So before <laughs> I answer that, why do you, why do you think? I think it's dr- I think it's. Say it. I think. I know what you're thinking. I think that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's a way to just drive. You know, it's a business. It's it's cesarean section, the business of cesarean sections. And I think that people um, that that institutions make money. I mean, I'm going to say this. I'm going to talk about a vaginal birth that I saw recently. I was asked to be a doula for a client that was having a vaginal birth in the hospital, second baby. Um, First baby was also in the hospital. Um, Mom had high blood pressure at the end of her pregnancy, in her labor with the first baby. Baby came very fast. Second baby, she developed high blood pressure and uh, 35 weeks and her doctor said, we need to induce you. Mom's like, great, no problem. We go to the hospital. I meet her there. She has, her first birth was probably uh, three hours, four hours. She had a precipitous vaginal birth, vaginal delivery. So we expect in the birth world that her second baby is probably going to come even faster. Um, And this is a smaller baby. Um, because the baby was early, et cetera. So when the mom went in, um, they started uh, the induction process, and I reminded the nurses there that she had a very quick delivery the first time. Um, the nurses were on, be, were on a schedule, the induction schedule, so their thing was we're going to check her dilation. We're going to wait six hours after starting the induction to check her dilation. And I said, hey, she had a very fast delivery, and she's on Pitocin right now. This baby is probably, and, and as I watched the mom, and as I dueled the mom, and I saw the signs of her labor, I saw that she was getting, to, she was becoming fully dilated. As a doula, as a birth worker, you can tell when women are moving through the, the stages, and many times without even checking a mom, you can kind of understand at what point of the labor she's in. And so I saw a mom who was feeling a lot of contractions. They were coming very fast, very quickly, and starting to feel pressure in her bottom. And I said, nurse, would you mind checking this mom? I think that she is probably fully dilated and ready to push. The nurse said, well, I'm not actually supposed to check her for another six hours. (laughs) And I said, well, but however, I just want to remind you that she had her baby in, in less than four hours, her first baby. Um, I suggest you check her. The nurse was very confused. She was very conflicted. She walked out of the room. She came back. Finally, she said, okay, you know, I'll I'll check the mom. At this point, the mom who was feeling this labor just coming on so quickly said, I think I want an epidural. And I said to the mom, you know, your baby's probably coming. All that pressure you're feeling is probably your baby right there. Um, it might even be ready for, it might even be time for you to push. And the mom was like, uh, the nurse, so the nurse walked in and the mom says, I want my epidural. And the nurse says, okay, you want an epidural? We'll go get you an epidural. They actually gave this mom an epidural. I've never seen an epidural be put in so fast. And the mom, she did not check the mom until oh, wow. after she got the epidural. The mom was, of course, fully dilated and the baby came flying out about five minutes after they placed her epidural. So why, my thing is, was that, like, let's get all this stuff. If the mom asks for it, let's give it to her. Ching, ching. We get to, we get yes. to charge for that. So in the same, okay. It's, expe- so, it's expediency and it's, it's, a, me- it's a medical legal that, uh, idea that I think is a fallacy. I think you get sued. 
because you have poor relationships and poor communication, not because you attempted, gave somebody informed consent and honored their decision-making. And I think that, that that's what happens. And so that's, it's, I always say it's expediency, uh, economics, and medical legal concerns. And that's sort of why, because there's enough evidence in the world to suggest that properly selected breach delivery, just like VBAC or twins, properly selected, um, do better if they're born vaginally. There's enough evidence in the world to make that a reasonable choice. And we as uh, physicians are supposed to honor informed consent and reasonable decision-making by, uh, by an autonomous patient. Right. That's what we're supposed to do. Exactly. But if, if you set up the system where there's no choices for a mom that is, has a breech baby, then it's really, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, well, it's laughable to say that a woman has a right to make a decision about how she wants to deliver because you don't have the proper support. You don't have people there to help her do something that's not crazy. It's well, not crazy to have a vaginal birth if you're properly selected, if your baby's in a good no, position. No, it's not. So, you know. But you just, the, the story that you just described just basically shows one of the problems is that that the, the, I mean, I'm sure that the nurse is probably a really good nurse, but they're conditioned exactly. to work in a system exactly. that they follow the rules, the rules because if they don't follow the rules, then they they're get called get on the carpet. They're going to get in trouble. Right. And, I, so, and I understand where she was conflicted. Let me tell you a story that's very similar to yours. Okay. When I used to work in the hospital, I had one of my favorite patients who had a history of precipitous labors. At, at 32, 33 weeks, she was walking around four or five centimeters dilated. I had her put her at bed rest and I did home visits on her till she got to 37, 38, I don't know, 38 weeks. And she was walking around, I mean, she was still six centimeters. So I brought her, in her first labor was, or second labor was precipitous. I think this was her second or third baby. So I brought her to Cedars at six in the morning for an induction. The plan was to rupture her membranes and then if nothing happened in a couple hours to start Pitocin so that it would be done and she wouldn't deliver on the, on the side of the road or at home. This is before I was a home birth Yeah, I was going to say, that doesn't, sound like, ideally, that doesn't sound like how you would do no, things No, but this now. was way back when. This right. was in the early 2000s, I think. And so I rupture her membranes and I wait around for about 20 minutes and nothing happens. So I go into the doctor's call room, all right? About 20 minutes later, the, she's starting to have pain and contractions. And she's feeling very uncomfortable. And, and the husband says to the nurse, I think the baby's coming. All right? Right. And uh, the nurse, something, somehow the nurse just, uh, talked her into getting an epidural. Okay? <laughs> and the husband kept saying, I think you should check her. We think the baby's coming. Right. All right? And the anesthesiologist came in. And they started putting an epidural. And this is probably about 45 minutes after I ruptured her membranes. About 25 minutes after I left the room. The anesthesiologist is trying to put the epidural in and the baby comes out, <laughs> all right, on the bed, all right? The nurse ends up catching the rest of the baby. I'm in the call room. The husband says to the team, don't you think you should call Dr. Fishbein? Because I stayed in the hospital because I knew that this was going to go really quickly. Finally, they call me. I come in the room, all right? The baby's delivered, all right? I am unbelievably upset because... It's a culmination of all you do. I made home visits on her. I delivered her right. first kid. Right. The whole, her birth story will be that I went so fast that Dr. Fishbein missed my birth. <laughs> and you were down the hall. And I was down the hall, <laughs> 60 feet down the hall, and they didn't come and get me. But they did get the epidural. 
No, she didn't even get the epidural in time. But they, they did but get they the anesthesiologist. But they didn't bother to check her before they were even putting the exactly. epidural. So, you know, I'm I'm in the hallway really upset, and the charge nurse is consoling me while I'm listening to the young... It was like a very young nurse, mm -hmm. and the other nurses are coming and congratulating her on her first BOA, on her catching her first baby. And she's all excited because she got to catch her first baby. Oh and I'm in the hallway in tears mm. because they, were, they, they didn't teach them right. how to like individualized care and this is why she was being brought in the whole reason she was being brought in was she has precipitous labors right exactly and that brings us back to our point about not individualizing care i saw that nurse really go in her mind and kind of think about the fact that i was asking her to check this mom who was feeling pressure and i could see that that was like something she felt very conflicted about doing simply doing a vaginal check which she has every right to do because the protocol, as she said, was I shouldn't check her for another. We were not we're not supposed to do it for another. I think it was at this point it was four hours because they put the Pitocin in. The mom had labored for two hours, basically, and, and started to birth her baby. So, I mean, and it's just confounding. Of course, since I work in home birth, it's ridiculous to me. It is absolutely ridiculous. But I'm in the hospital setting and I was in the role of the doula. And so, you know, I just took note. And, yeah. I, and I feel like that's the same thing with C-section. Well, the scary, the scary thing for me after this conference uh, was over was, was get the realization that, that despite the best efforts to re-educate people on these options, that these options are diminishing, uh, they're continuing to diminish. You know, I, I was reading a book called The Perfect Birth. It's a, it, written by a guy named William DeVries. He's a physician from, I think he's from Minnesota, but he's got Dutch ancestry. And it was probably the, it was a book about birthing in the Netherlands, and it was written in 2004. And in 2004, the home birth rate in the Netherlands was 40%. And when I got there, I had cocktails with a lovely set of midwives. It, the first night I got, the second night I got there, they had a, at, a, at Claudia's house, it was great. And um, I saw the pictures, I saw the oxytocin flowing. Yeah, it was yeah, great. yeah, you know, everywhere I went, it was just me. Basically, <laughs> 90, by the way, 93% of the attendees were women Interesting. at the conference, but there were 50 physicians and 190 mid, uh, uh, midwives or other birth, birth workers, workers at the conference. But of the 50 physicians, again, these are all syncophants. They're all, they're the, the, they're the 50 that really didn't need to be there. Got it. You know, it's preaching we, to the choir. We need, we need the, we need people who are, you know, anti-breach to come to right. these sorts of conferences. Right. That sort of thing. Anyway, what was I saying? You were talking about the midwives that you had uh, drinks with and uh, you. Oh, that, oh, that, and then we were, they were telling me that the home birth rate in the Netherlands has fallen to 13%. Wow. And you think of the Netherlands as we think of the Netherlands right. as one of the leading countries right. like, like Britain. And the reason why? Because they the want their epidural. They want their epidural. No, well, there's because of the medicalization of birth. Because the, 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 even though we think there's good collaboration and there's much better collaboration in those countries, there's still a hierarchy there. And the doctors are the doctors and the midwives are the midwives. And the doctors are taking over birth. Right. And they're making it more and more difficult for women right. And making it more more frightening for women. Well, I think they're they're to have, choose home birthing. I think they have that has been uh, being chipped away over the past years, and maybe it's kind of gone under the radar for us because uh, we do like to look at the Netherlands and parts of Europe as like being so midwife doctor collaborative and midwife friendly, and everybody has a midwife. But I do know that I have, and I have been hearing over the last years that there the midwives' rights and the midwives' way of practicing has been under. Um, attack so to speak um very much like 
what has happened already in the United States years and years and years ago. So it's not kind of not surprising. I think it's more like the real deal is what you heard when you went to Amsterdam, as opposed to like our romant- romanticized notion of what it's like in Europe. You actually got to see that it's not really like that. And this over-medicalization of birth is, ha- is, 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 is kind of trying to conquer the planet, you know? Yeah. And in summary, it's worldwide and it's having these consequences like we talked about in Tanzania and Malawi, where, you know, you may do something in a third world country, a first world country, which is bad enough, but it, it, it has ripple effects that go on far beyond uh, what we had. At, at that said, Stu, I just want to say that, you know, this is a first world problem and that uh, we, in some ways, because we, you know, there are places around the world too where, you know, we need to have C-section more available. And I do want to just say that because I don't feel like C-section is a, is an evil thing. I think that if you need a, a truly have a medical need for a C-section, we all know that that can save lives and it can save babies' lives and moms' lives. No, it's not the C-section that's evil. It's the it's the it's the surgeons that are evil. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, you said. Yeah, it. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like cars don't kill people. You know, guns don't kill people. Right. People kill people. Right. right. I agree. Yeah. 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 C-section agree. C-sections don't aren't aren't bad necessarily. So what's your what's your take? away from the breach conference well my takeaway was basically confirming and it's what, what i loved about it was it was affirming for me that what i'm doing isn't crazy maybe the home birthing thing makes me an outlier but it but it, but i'm not crazy right because that properly selected upright breach delivery and and i'm still you know i still do probably half of mine on their back because that's the way i did them forever but i'm gonna but i found more and more physiologic reasons and evidence to support trying to get women on all fours right and i'm gonna have to turn my brain upside down so i can right. you know handle it the right way but but uh and then i learned a lot about the maneuvers and about when a breach is telling you that it needs help versus when it's not telling you when it doesn't need help awesome and ways to assess how a breach is doing when it's half hanging out and that the key is to keep your hands off the breach Mm -hmm. you don't need to flick the feet out you don't need to put your hands on the baby you just leave it alone and uh, you know you can tell by the the turbidity of the cord the the uh, color of the baby the tone of the baby that the baby's absolutely fine awesome there's, you know, if people want to understand the specifics of it, I suggest they either go to okay. my blog page or go to Rick Safriz's, um, uh Stand and Deliver at blogspot.com. And, uh, but that's the sort of thing that, that uh, I took home from it is that breach is a reasonable choice with skilled hands. And the thing is, just like I said, with shoulder dystocia, the skills should be taught. The best way to teach them was suggested by Andrew Bissett's from from Australia is that we need to, you need to, and, and Frank Lewin, you need to see lots of videos. Mm-hmm. You know, again, you're not going to get enough breach right. deliveries in your training. So videos, uh, mannequins, right. they're making really great mannequins now. They're very expensive, but but institutions could buy them and they're unbelievably lifelike. And you can, you can teach it that way. Observing, having discussions, going to conferences like that, that's the key. That's awesome. So listen, Kim, I wanted to say that this was our first uh, podcast together. This is podcast number 93. I think I forgot to say that at the beginning. <laughs> so I'll say it at the end. This is podcast number 93. It's podcast number one for Kim Durden. And uh, it was really a pleasure having you today. Thank you. I look forward to, to uh, talking to you next week. Great. Excellent. Uh, all right. And me thanks too. for listening. Again, you can write me at askdrstu at gmail.com. I hope this trigger some uh, emails i'm happy to answer them directly sometimes we'll even speak of them on uh, the show so from uh, me and kim thanks for listening